0: Welcome to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I am your host, Dr. James, here with your other host, Dr. Dante, and today we are talking about your ankles, one of the least appreciated and most important joints in your body because it bears all your weight and it's injured quite frequently. It's probably the most frequently injured joint of uh, any athletic injuries. And part of the reason for that is all of the stress that it's under. Now, I wanted to paint a picture for you today about your ankle and compare it to something that you might find a little bit more comfortable. The joint itself is under a lot of strain and a lot of stress. And it's built very much like a suspension bridge, really. So get in your minds the Golden Gate Bridge. You've got two tall, solid structures out there in the San Francisco Bay, and extending from those tall towers, you have cables that stretch out for a long distance, and then underneath those cables is suspended a road. And you have this interplay between the cables that are flexible, that can move, and the static structures of those towers that provide support and stability. That type of structure is called a tensegrity structure. Now tensegrity is a big word. It's an unusual word. It was originally coined by an eccentric man by the name of Buckminster Fuller which with a name like that you get a freedom to use all of these cool words. And he described an object with this internal consistency and yet resilience that can be deformed by stresses without losing its structural integrity, such that when you stop deforming it, it returns to its original shape. Another object like this would be a geodesic dome, which is what Buckminster Fuller was really well known for. And the ankle, it turns out, has similar capabilities. Now, within the body, we call this biotensegrity because it's a biologic system that shows tensegrity. And in the case of the ankle, the reason why I say that this is a tensegrity structure is because of how it's set up. So you think about the ankle, it has some pretty strong, solid components in the form of the tibia, which is the big bone in your lower leg, the fibula, another bone that's the sister bone to the tibia in the lower leg sitting on top of the talus which is uh, another bone in your ankle. Those sit on top of the calcaneus as well as some other bones in your foot. Now wrapping around those bones you have muscles and you have ligaments and tendons keeping everything together. On the back side of the ankle you have your calf muscles, those big gastrocnemius and soleus muscles that wrap down to the heel bone put tension on the heel in the form of the Achilles tendon and that tension is wrapped under the foot as you have the plantar fascia attached from the midfoot to the uh, heel bone and those two structures, the, the plantar fascia and the Achilles, exert opposite forces on that heel and on that ankle keeping things stable and then you work from the front you have another muscle up front. Now, we think of the shin as just a bone, but in reality there's a muscle up front there. It's called tibialis anterior because it's on the front side of your tibia, and it extends down to your foot. And the purpose of the tibialis anterior is to pick your foot up off the pedal versus the gastrocnemius, which is meant to press your foot into a pedal. That interplay of forces from the gastrocnemius, or the calf muscles, and that tibialis anterior uh, play off each other to keep the ankle stable. The trouble with the ankle is there's a lot of forces. I like to say there are phenomenal body powers being forced through that ankle under a little bitty working space. So much so that when you walk, every time you take a step, you exert three times your body weight worth of force through that ankle. And every time you run, that force goes up to five times. So a guy like me, when I'm just walking, I'm putting 750 pounds of force through one ankle at one time. That's a lot of force. So you can understand now, when we talk about ankle injuries, why they happen. And in particular, ankle sprains. So tell us a little bit about ankle sprains, Dr. Dante.
1: Sure, sure. So ankle sprains are phenomenally common. They, it's almost the defining injury of being an athlete at this point. Um, and the interesting thing is they all kind of collapse in the same direction. There's a middle side, a medial side, a lateral side. The medial side is the inner side that's, if we go from your groin down, is the inner thigh side. The lateral side is a side that's um, hugging the outside of your ankle, pointing towards, let's say, you know, away from your body. Most folks roll outwards, not inwards. As in they roll over their ankle, not underneath their ankle. What ends up happening is they um, essentially go too far forward and a little bit too far to the side, they tumble. You had that imagery of the ankle as this beautiful golden gate bridge tensegrity structure and that's correct and accurate most of the time, but when these fellows roll their ankle it's kind of more like a weevil that wobbles and doesn't fall, that type of deal. And it just collapses, it slams into the ground and it doesn't crack, it doesn't shatter, but it tears and then it kind of bounces, sort of
0: doesn't bounces and you end up
1: with what amounts to an
0: ankle sprain. So we basically deform the ankle past its structural integrity until something breaks Absolutely. Or something tears.
1: Right. We'll say gives. Because what? Every material has that elastic threshold. You can stretch and pull and crush anything only so far before you actually destroy the material itself. And once you overstretch a ligament, it loses that elastic property. It loses that ability to spring back that you articulated and it just tears. And you end up with injury. And it's not like a subtle, oh, like, hey, my ankle feels off. It's no, this ankle is no longer working right. Um, If we talk about a tensegrity structure the way you do, how it distributes force across everything, essentially, if you have a crack somewhere, that means that that crack now can't contribute to the rest of the body. There's a point of weakness. And every big movement you do is going to readdress and re-aggravate that little point of weakness. And that, for an athlete, that sucks. That's the difference between being able to run and not run, cut or not cut, You talked about when you run, you're multiplying the force by, what was it? Five Five times. By five times. times. There were some other studies that show when you're jumping, that is a factor of 25. 25 times body weight for just a brief moment, and that's massive, and you can't have any part failure during that. That's a non-negotiable. You need that integrity. Hey, biotensegrity,
0: integrity, tension integrity. It's kind of cool that way. Yeah, and now that you mention it, one of the most common ways we see an inversion ankle sprain is someone who jumps. Mm I, AKA playing basketball or volleyball, and then lands on someone else's foot, causing that ankle to roll out against two of the most weak tendons in, or ligaments, excuse me, in the ankle. You know, we, we often don't hear of the opposite or a medial ankle sprain, uh, an eversion sprain, because you've got this really solid uh, ligament there, it's called the deltoid ligament. It attaches essentially. Your tibia to your ankle and so that's got to be strong and that one is but you go on the opposite side and you've got that anterior talofibular ligament and then the calcaneofibular ligaments and those suckers are weak.
1: Right and the cool part is I found out they were weak for a reason actually so humans came from something and there's this concept of common ancestors and evolution once upon a time before we were these bipedal things it actually kind of made sense to have feet shaped that way particularly because when we were more chimp-like than we were human-like, not saying we evolved from chimps, it's not quite
0: that, but... Some of us have evolved farther than others, for sure. There's... was it? Um,
1: Anyway, yes. (laughs) Um, The foot of our, I guess, our evolutionary predecessors was not this springy running, cutting, jumping thing. It was primarily a climbing structure. It was basically a hand. And if you look at the way your hand works, it's not this big, tense spring structure either. It's meant for articulation, for grabbing, for holding. It's a mobile structure and mm-hmm. it comes up time and time again. You you can only have one or the other to some degree. You can't be mobile and stable at the same time. And what we gained in the ankle mobility in order to run and jump and so on and so forth, we sacrificed the stability of having a rigid piece. And I mean, I
0: think it's worth it because we can run now. And but it also allows us to walk upright on a a more consistent basis than any of our relative apes. Exactly. Um,
1: I was looking at some really cool anthropologic stuff. The same thing that gives us that weak ankle, that weak lateral support, is actually the same structure that allows us to have the medial arch in the first place. And you think, oh, it's a medial arch, what's the big deal? I see people walking flat-footed all the time. But no, that medial arch is the thing that makes up what amounts to the core of your foot. Uh, Using core in the way we talk about the core, like the midsection, your core is that thing that stabilizes the things around it, and that medial arch of your foot is the thing that stabilizes the rest of your foot. Because we gave, because we lost that stability in our lateral ankle, we gained the ability to sprint. And I don't know, saber-tooth tigers are scary. I like sprinting.
0: I must not be as highly evolved because I've never been a good spr- sprinter. Then, <laughs> slower than a seven-year itch. Yeah, but that's yeah. okay. That's that's amazing how the the structure and the function are so interconnected.
1: Right, right. And it's this weird concept of trade-offs. It's not where I thought we would go today. But as you start describing the uh, the image the imagery of that Golden Gate Bridge, you always have to think about like what, but what at what cost? What does it mean to have this piece? And for us, I guess that's it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be unstable, though, because right. I'll tell you right now between the jiu-jitsu, the Filipino martial arts, the wrestling, the powerlifting, the just straight up, I guess, being a kid in the 90s, I've been thrown into, jumped off of, flung into, collided into, and crashed into enough things that if this ankle was just um, mobile and not stable, I shouldn't be walking right now. I shouldn't even have feet at this point. But they're surprisingly resilient. They've taken a lot of damage. They've taken a lot of hell, And there's actually something to it. I wasn't sure what it was about before. Uh, but as I you know, progressed as a physician and learned more about the mechanics of how part works, I was learning that there's actually ways to make
0: that foot more stable Absolutely. even without strengthening the ligament itself and actually angles ten the tensegrity. And, and because there's so much muscular attachment associated with that ankle, we can work on that. I, I do think it's interesting that most of uh, the ankle sprains happen as a fluke rather than as a systemic failure. Right. So, for example, um, when, uh, some, uh, through some kinetics or kinematic studies have shown that uh, injuries happened when the foot was internally rotated a little more than it normally is. So under normal circumstances, under normal stresses, if the foot's planted appropriately and is not internally rotated as much, you're taking stress off of those weaker ligaments and you don't run the risk of injuring it. Along that same lines, uh, a lot of these injuries happen as a result of jumping and then landing so that you roll your ankle outwards. That's not a normal position. When you're jumping, you're expecting to land on flat surfaces or relatively flat surfaces. Otherwise, you wouldn't be jumping. And our body unless you do parkour. Unless you do parkour. But even then, the way that they uh, plan their jumps are to land on solid surfaces in one way or another or to distribute forces away from their landing so that they don't put a lot of strain on your feet. That's why with the parkour, they land and roll rather right. than land flat-footed because if they did land flat-footed, again, they run the higher risk of injury.
1: Right. That's actually, um, it's funny you mentioned that. That's actually kind of the story of how I tore my ankle. So back a couple months back, I was Mm -hmm. doing something called a box jump. It's a plyometric jump. Essentially, it's the training
0: jump for parkour-ish maneuvers, right? And it's the bane of every CrossFitter. Yep.
1: (laughs) Uh, Full disclosure, not a CrossFitter. I trained at a CrossFit institution just for fun, to see it one time, I did CrossFit one time. It was fun, it was sincerely very fun. But I I was not trained for that activity. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, when you have these big leaping, bounding, dynamic uh, activities, It's not the joints themselves that take the strain, it's the ligaments, the tendons, the fascia that interweaves around it. Uh, Specifically in the context of the jump, the thing that stores and reconciles that elastic energy is your Achilles tendon specifically, which is continuous with this plantar fascia. What ends up happening when you jump is, or when you jump repeatedly, as in when you bounce, is the muscles, the actual muscles don't change length that much, they just stay tight. The thing that stretches and relaxes is actually the tendon and that's wild because typically we think of tendons as what? Ropes, right? Right. It's almost static, but they're not really that static. Right. They're springs. And a rope is not a spring. A rope, just what? It pulls. That's boring. Nobody cares. It doesn't have much give. Exactly. A spring stores energy. And that's a big deal because every time you jump and land, you store that energy into your elastic tendons and then you release that energy and you spring back into the air. And then you do it again and again. And then unfortunately, in my case, I stored a little bit too much elastic energy in my tendon and then it crit failed and blew out on me. That was kind of
0: fun. <laughs> in, in an interesting sense of the word, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It was fun for you to uh, rehab yourself and then and treat it, but. Uh, right, right. I, I learned a lot about how the ankle works being my own patient. What's interesting to me is is the chain of stress that follows an ankle sprain, an ankle injury in general. We think of, oh, I just, I've just i got a swollen ankle, I'm just going to treat it as we normally treat it and, and we're good. But what we don't realize is the other structures that can be injured. For example, tibialis anterior. When the body senses that there's structural integrity being compromised, it tenses both the gastrocnemius and soleus and the tibialis anterior from front and back trying to stabilize that ankle. There are some other muscles there called the pronius muscles. They help the gastrocnemius and also help cause inversion and eversion, specifically eversion of the foot. And they tense up at the same time. So you start this chain reaction, where you're, you're tensing muscles. And then when you straighten your leg, a, a lot of these happen with the leg in extension or straightened. The, the calf muscles and the hamstrings interact to each other. They're normally disconnected unless the leg is extended. And then with the leg extended, then that, that uh, tension can go up the hamstrings and the hamstrings get activated. Well, when you activate your hamstrings, then you activate your quads. Because, again, they're trying to stabilize the limb. And the, another purpose for these muscles is to keep your body from falling to, to the ground. It wants to keep you vertical. Right, right. And so the strain continues up in this pattern. And then the hip flexors get involved. And the, the, the gluteal muscles on that same side get involved.
1: Right. And once you have the glutes involved, now you're going to involve the opposite side, lat dorsi. Exactly. That's the, the pull-up muscle, which means yes. at this point, what, that jump is no longer just in your foot that jump is going all the way up into your shoulder, and if we're being really honest, that shock, for any of those who've jumped off anything greater than 10 feet, you feel that shock all the way up into your skull if you mess up the landing.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Seeing
1: that from experience.
0: (laughs) We'll have to talk about that later. (laughs) True story, I
1: actually learned how to do some, like, uh, there was actually another neuromuscular physician who um, trains in a parkour gym. I think he actually wants to be on Ninja Warrior at some point, and he was trying to teach me how to do some of this stuff because, you know, neuromuscular physician, athlete, nerd, let's try to put it together. So he's walking me through all this stuff, and then he goes, all right, now that you understand all this theory, I want you to run up something called a warped wall. A warped wall is essentially this curved structure that bends back at you kind of like a tidal wave, and your job is to, against all odds, run up the tidal wave and grab onto the top, because sure, physics is a thing. Right? So I tried to do that, because I'm thinking, ah, you know what, I, I speak, doctor, he explained me theory, tendon elastic recoil, I got it, cool, let's do this. Let's, let's do this thing. I, got way too much air relative to what I thought I would. Oh, no. And I had no idea how to land. I had no no clue how to land. So when I landed- No, 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 it was a straight squat. I landed in a squat, which means I didn't break nothing. But all of that elastic energy we talk about, that the tendon is meant to cycle, what? I said when you jump, when you run, it's five times. When you jump, it's 25. Mm -hmm. Instead of that 25 times my body weight, which is about 180 pounds, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: instead of that cycling across all of my tendons and bouncing back, that went straight into my back. Oof. And I remember I landed and went, oof. And I didn't break anything, but I sat there like, I'm gonna sit here for I'm for a while. I'm just gonna this dissipate. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Oh, snap. There's yeah.
1: good vibrations and then there's that moment. And
0: there's, there's that vibration. So yeah, 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 yeah. Not a good vibration. Yeah,
1: that might as well have been a concussion, man. It was the most wild feeling. Ah, oh, man, that was a good memory. <laughs> Almost concussed your lower
0: back there, apparently.
1: Dude, I think if I if I didn't land as cleanly as I did, that would have been a concussion
0: proper, man. Well, and and we see a lot of these kinds of injuries where um, you injure your ankle and you don't realize there's other things going on. And then oh, three, four weeks go by, your ankle's starting to feel better. But doc, man, my back is hurting. Why is my back hurting? Or are, are my shoulders hurting? Or my hips hurting? Because you lost your goddamn shock absorption. <laughs> And your body was trying to prevent itself from landing awkwardly, which obviously doesn't work once you have no more uh, stability. Exactly. One other aspect of the ankle that I find is interesting. You've got this band. um, It's called a retinaculum. It's basically these tissues that wrap around areas that, that keep things stable for the most part. But in the ankle, you have this retinaculum, this almost a bracelet. If you will, yeah, and it's loaded with nerves, and these nerves do what's called proprioception, which basically send information back to your brain to tell your brain what that region's doing. So it's involved with balance and stability. Right. If you disrupt that, then you can also affect someone's balance. So.
1: <laughs> right. The metaphor is not a metaphor. Like I, I called it shock absorption for a reason. Because most folks understand this is what the suspension does in a car, right? You're on some bumpy roads. It doesn't feel like you're driving on bumpy roads as much as you are just kinda sort of somewhat gliding up and down. That ankle, that knee, those two together, they play that role. And the moment that retinaculum right, can't give that feedback, you're you're in the woods. It doesn't know how tight to be, how loose to be. The tendon, even if it's good to go, it doesn't know how tense to be. So all that tension, all that force that you accumulate shoots right past it because you can't sync it up. And it goes into what your knee your si joint your hip your back and all of a sudden that jump that used to feel so good now that shock is going all the way into your butt and you're like why the
0: heck does my butt hurt when i jump
1: Cl- clearly speaking from experience yeah, on this one.
0: yeah it becomes a pain in the butt
1: exactly jumping <laughs> becomes a pain in the ass that being said um healing this thing for all the importance for all the things it can do for as important as it is that's kind of why it deserves its own attention that's why we have this episode right this beautiful piece of our shock absorption, this beautiful thing that carries us from place to place. It's a tragedy when it doesn't work, and it's a beautiful thing when we can get it to work again. Here's a cool fact. Achilles was a character from Greek mythology. He was the son of a mortal man and an immortal woman. Now, his mother, Thetis, dipped him into the river Styx. What does that mean? That means that he was dipped into that thing which would confer to him godlike strength. However, you can't just drop a kid into the water. You have to hold on to him by something. She held on to him by his heel. And because she held on to him by his heel, the heel never got submerged. What does that mean? That means that his heel never got the godlike strength that could have been, as in that heel became the weak point. That heel also became his undoing. Now, what does that mean for us? The Achilles tendon is that thing which hampers so many of our athletes. It is named as such because
0: of this story. So we have all of these things going on, this whole chain reaction of events can lead to more than just ankle pain. So one of the reasons for the episode today is to discuss some different options for treating ankle sprains and other ankle injuries. Now, the traditional approach to an ankle sprain is best described as price therapy. So we have protecting the ankle, often with a brace, resting the ankle, getting them out of the activity that was causing the sprain in the first place, icing it, and you could say anti-inflammatory as well, compressing the ankle, which can be done with a brace, again, or a, a, a good wrap and uh, finally elevating the legs so that you can reduce uh, swelling. In addition to that, you mobilize that ankle at a relatively early pace so that you can get motion so the ankle doesn't tighten up and become stiff and problematic. But fortunately, osteopathic physicians have other approaches that can be used. For example, with the foot, a lot of times when someone sprains their ankle, they put so much force into the foot that some of the joints in the foot get jammed up. And so if you can mobilize those joints using what we call articulatory technique, you can actually improve range of motion and reduce pain. But what was particularly interesting to me, Dante, is the way that you rehabbed your own self back to a really high functioning level. So I wanted to get into that. Let's talk about how you started after your Achilles injury doing some things that would also apply for an ankle sprain.
1: Sure, sure. Although, just to be clear, it wasn't just me who rehabbed the thing. It was, it was a team effort, man, to put it together. When, um, when I felt that pop and went down, I remember looking at my ankle and going, God, I hope it's broken because I'd rather break a bone than tear a tendon. Bones break, they heal back stronger. Tendons, rebuilding a tendon, man, that's, most of our job is getting people back their movements. So we know how into the woods this type of pathology gets. And I'm like, I'll be damned if I end up being in that case. So I remember I landed-
0: It takes a lot longer for those tendons to heal up too. Absolutely.
1: So I looked down and I saw that nothing was sticking out of my ankle and I went, Oh God it's beautiful and that was the most terrible thing I've seen <laughs> I'm like terrifyingly no, beautiful I want to see bones sticking out my <laughs> ankle
0: man I want it to be misformed I'm, right right not
1: swollen and then um, I remember I, I had so much rage and adrenaline because this is during a competition this is during training you know what I mean that I just walk the damn thing off and I'm like hold up that doesn't feel right where's my where's my spring where's my tension because I was walking on it hmm but all of that agility we talked about that elastic rebound that recycling of energy Every step I took, man, felt like I was trying to move a tower and drop it again, and every step hurt. And I'm like, something is wrong here. So I called um, a lot of the doctors who trained me, actually. Um, The guy who trained me in sports med is Dr. Robert Franks over in in Philadelphia, uh, Dr. Survey, actually, who was apparently grading, um, or sorry, proctoring an exam at the time. So that was kind of fun.
0: Yeah. yeah, And then um,
1: our, our residency director, Dr. Mason, I called them up, like, sequentially, like, all right, somebody, somebody's got to pick up. Somebody's got to pick up. And then Dr. Mason picked up. And I told him, like, hey, man, I messed up. And I could hear in his voice, like, he knows something bad happened. <laughs> like, what did Cause, you do? Because when I introduce a conversation <laughs> with, hey, man, I messed up. Then you know something's going wrong. Exactly. And I'm, I'm glad he knew enough to know that for me, when I say that, that doesn't mean, like, I committed a crime or nothing. It means right, I got hurt. Right.
0: Yeah. He wasn't saying, who did you shoot?
1: Right, right. He went, <laughs> what can I do? And I'm like, I think I tore my Achilles tendon, man. And he goes, slow down. And I'm like, no, no, here's the exam. And he goes, oh. So um, it was such a beautiful coordination of resources. Um, the office ordered the MRI. I was able to um, take appropriate time off of work, like a day off, just to get the study done. The study was read the day after. I brought it in, showed it to all of us, got the official read. We all looked at it and went, damn, because uh, it was pretty <laughs> yeah, much that's a full tear. That's gone. And then we immediately, almost immediately, mobilized for orthopedic surgery. That was a whole adventure in itself navigating insurance because turns out my orthopedic surgeon was covered but my hospital wasn't and I'm like that's no bueno. So we had to do the whole thing all over again and then I remember Monday, I, Monday, uh, sorry, Saturday I tore it, Monday I got the MRI Wednesday I knew I was going to the OR and then by next Wednesday because of the insurance glitch I was in the OR which is great because you don't actually cut these open the day of the injury. You want it to actually tack down a bit, so...
0: Yeah, you want the swelling to go down, so you know what you're going for. If you have a lot of swelling in the way, you don't know what to treat.
1: Exactly. So, you want to do the surgery somewhere between 7 to 14 days, day 11, boom, cut me open, done. And that's when the story began, basically.
0: That's when the rehab started. Early mobilization and the other treatments. Right, right, right.
1: Because the surgery is easy. The surgery is open me up, sew it together, close me, goodbye. Um, The rehab was Brutal man. I, I didn't know how brutal a rehab could be, because what happens is, first you're immobilized for for a period of time. For me, it was uh, it was eight weeks. Yeah, it was eight weeks, because it was a bad tear, and the, uh, my surgeon wanted to be very careful uh, with the uh, with the incision because it's such a sensitive area that if it tears again, there's just no fixing it. So he's like, we need to protect this thing. We're doing right. eight weeks. That's long right. for this. And I remember like, it's oh, holy crap. It's going to be eight weeks before I see my foot again. Because the last thing I remember was, all right, when are we doing the, <sighs> and I was out. And I woke up like, hey, I have a boot on.
0: <laughs> like, wh- what happened?
1: Right, right, right. So the last time I saw my foot, it was this big swollen blue thing. And then next, it's in this cage of ace wrap and gauze. And I'm like, okay, cool. I guess the surgery happened.
0: I and guess then I came out okay.
1: Right, right. And then I remember him telling me not to move the thing because I'm going to want to move it. But I need to remember that it's there. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. But as I went through this process, I really felt what it means to remember your part is there, even though you can't see it.
0: Sure, sure.
1: So, I mean, look, I'm in this boot. I'm trying to, like, touch my toes. I'm trying to, like, play with the muscles that I can't see anymore because I can't see my foot. But you know they're there. Right, right, right. And then I remember I was so happy the day that they took off the casting and I saw my foot for the first time after, like, eight weeks. And the first thing I said, I looked at the doctor, I looked at my wife and went, that's not my foot where the hell is my foot and I'm like I know like in retrospect I'm like hey that's dysmorphia in the time I'm going where the hell is my foot I
0: can't see it it's not that's not my foot right right
1: I know it was a little bit smaller but dude it was like a pencil in my perception I'm like something is wrong here this either atrophied to hell or I'm having a perceptual glitch I don't know what the hell is happening somebody help me and I was trying to fire the thing and I thought I was moving my foot
0: But I realized that when I actually
1: could see the foot and what I was doing, I couldn't move a damn thing.
0: You couldn't tell it to do what you wanted to do and have it listen to you.
1: Right, right. I was producing the faintest tremor of a movement. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, holy crap. Is this this fibrosis? Is this scar tissue? I found out, you know, in time it wasn't because we were able to take care of it. Scars don't build up and build down that quickly. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, this is not acceptable. I need to get this thing back ASAP. So, um...
0: And ASAP being very relative.
2: Yeah.
1: Because still, I'm, I'm still going to work during all this, man. I'm sure. still, like, seeing sure. patients and stuff in a scooter. Yeah, so, walk, he was.
0: He was, he was <laughs> you should have seen him going up and down the halls in his knee scooter. It was, it was quite the thing.
1: Yeah. Our boss called me Zippy.
0: Yeah. I was she, pretty okay with that. She did.
1: Yeah. But um, what happened was I knew that I had to get mobility back to this ankle ASAP. It needed data. It needed feedback. It needed to know that it was still alive. So the moment I went home, straight up, I cried, and then I went to work. So that night, and for every night thereafter, for weeks on end, I would basically spend an hour feeding my foot data. What does that mean? That means I would articulate the joints. what does that mean? Yeah, I would give it information. I would let it know that it's there. So I would do a soft tissue thing. I'd do a myofascial release. I would drag the fascia around to work out all of the kinks. I would pop all the joints back that fell out of place because there was no tension back. We talk about suspension bridge, Mm -hmm. how do you rebuild a suspension bridge when it's been taken down? You have to lift the whole thing up again and all that lifting, all that popping, all that cracking, all that articulation was moments of sensation and after every little sensation I'd say, oh that's my foot again, that's my foot again. I would do something called efflorage, which drains the lymphatic buildup in that ankle because even though it was quote unquote small it was it was boggy. It was soppy. It was spongy. And I'm like, that's not what an ankle feels like. So I would put my leg up, get in a bath, and just drain that fluid out by massaging it from the end, from the distal piece where my toe begins, all the way up to my knee until I can feel it sinking out of my ankle
0: into my thigh and picking back up into my pelvis. And then I would do that
1: again and again and again.
0: So you were essentially forcing the old inflammatory fluid out of the ankle tissues. Right back into the lymphatic channels that can drain it, the tubes that we're gonna talk about in a later episode. Absolutely. And in essence, shrink that size of the swelling. Right, right. And the, the benefit of effleurage is not just shrinking the size of the foot, but also getting pain relief because there's less pressure in the tissue surrounding the injury. Right, right. And the cool thing was as
1: that pressure backed off, as those nerves didn't have to drown in a lymphatic fluid, literally, they were able to pick up on things again. And then I would say, Hey, there's my talus. There's my calcaneus. There's a lot of bone. There's like a There ton you bones are, in my long
0: foot. lost friends. Right, right, right. I never thought I would love my <laughs>
1: talus as much as I did. Oh, I love you, man. On, then the first night I felt it, I remember I was in my living room and I'm like, Where the hell is this damn thing? And I felt a flicker of sensation and I went, Hey, I cleared enough lymph that I can feel my talus. He's back. Where the hell's the rest of my foot? (laughs) And then every day from there, it was just bit by bit by bit. And every time I earned a piece back, I'd play with it as much as I could. And I mean the word play. I wouldn't train it. But I would love it and enjoy it. I would joke around with it. I would move it around. I'd do stuff with it. I'd play games with it. Try to pick up toys and stuff with my toes. And then at some point, I realized I wasn't healing fast enough, even for my standards. So I had to go even harder. I started doing something called direct inhibition where you basically -hmm. basically squeeze and compress the tissue until it gives up. And I realized that my body responded really well to that. So I was articulating my ankle. I was effleuraging the site where the injury was made. I was doing direct inhibition on all the muscles that got so tight after disuse. I was digging into my gastrocs, into my knees, into my hamstrings. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that it was working, but it wasn't working fast enough yet. So I decided, okay, even if I got the sensation back, it was still weak as hell. And that's not acceptable. I need to get strength back. I, can't, I can feel it. I found my leg. It's my leg again.
2: But you it is weak. Use it.
1: Right. And I realized I couldn't fire the leg consciously. I couldn't control it. It wasn't my leg. It was just a leg that happened to be on my body. So the next thing I did after consulting with um, Dr. Survey, actually, mm-hmm. was I took a bunch of acupuncture needles because we bought a bunch of acupuncture needles. Yeah, we do have those. And I started doing something called dry needling to, one, release more fibrosis, but really what I was doing was something called uh, biofeedback. Mm -hmm. Because even though I could feel my leg and it was mine, I wasn't really connected to my leg yet, but, and this is gonna sound macabre as all heck, I could still feel pain. Which meant that if I floated that needle into a place that hurt, I would be happy that it hurt because that would mean that that leg was connected to me again. So you knew that there was a connection there. Exactly, so I would drive that needle you proved that there was connection exactly in a way I couldn't deny because I could see the needle twitch so i would float the needle let's say the medial gastroc for me was just hell for the longest time it was the last one to come back actually Mm -hmm. so I'd float the needle into the medial gastroc put four or five of them in there stare at the damn thing and say move physically I'm telling it to move I'm commanding it to move with everything I got and then I would feel a twinge of pain because when, you know, when you just needles in your ankle or needles in your muscle and you twitch it, you kind of hurt. Right, right. And then I would feel that pain and go, hey, that's my ankle. Oh, sorry, oh, that's my calf.
0: There we go. Right, right, right. There we go. It's I an ankle it.
1: episode. I'm going to say ankle. Yeah. But every time I felt that pain, I would go, that's mine. That's my pain. That's my leg. That's my calf. And then I would embrace that pain because that means that I had a connection back to my uh, calf. And then as I gained more control, I didn't need the pain anymore. Then I took the needles out and I could actually use the damn thing.
0: And then... That's when I was ready for actual follow-up with a physician. <laughs> and then you could come back in. Now, I, I will tell you that uh, your rehab and your recovery has been no sh- nothing short of amazing. And what, uh, what's uh, great about this is that anyone who comes in to a properly trained physician can have a similar experience. Right. These are all things that we're trained to do to others. Especially osteopathic physicians.
1: Right. And... Um... Oh man, I remember the look on everybody's face, myself included. Typically, this takes six to nine months to heal. But what, it, October of 2018? Yeah, it was mid October yeah, when you went October 6th. down. October 6th, yeah. And then I remember I told my, um, I told my wife that I'm going to drive on Christmas. And I, I thought I'm going to walk on Christmas, but I started walking in November. <laughs> Barely. I was walking in a boot, but I was walking. But you were walking? But then I told her I'm going to drive before because we, we were I, we're in Texas right now. I live in New I'm from New Jersey, and I really wanted to be able to walk, holding my kid on Christmas. And I distinctly remember, um, as we're flying home, flying to to New Jersey, I walked into the airport. I held my son. I got in the plane, and you know I celebrated Christmas with my family. That's what October, November, December, three months, man, three months, and I was on my feet holding a 25. Pound old, 25 pound, 10 month
0: old. Yeah, your your boy's a tank. Yeah, he's
1: a bit of a tank. And I remember not feeling like I was broken. But then I remembered I wasn't broken. And I don't cry much, but this story doesn't quite imply that. I straight up cried, dude. <laughs> and there's
0: because, nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: dude. Nothing wrong with that. The ecstasy of knowing that I was like back was inconceivable. I didn't know I could miss a part so much that when I earned it back that it would break, it would, it would break me. I was weak in the knees, I'm like holy crap. Cause I didn't know, I didn't realize how good I got until my family saw me and they're like, didn't you just tear this thing, how are you doing this? And I'm like, I I, I, I don't know, I, t- t- Merry Christmas. Here I am. Right, right, right. And then, oh man. the The thing that doesn't get really articulated well in our job, because There's the statistics about the morbidity, mortality. There's components of quality of life. Sure. But you gotta remember, man. Humans are designed to walk. In the most technical sense, we're a walking creature. Like birds fly, fish swim. swim. Thank you. Yeah. There we go. Humans.
0: We walk. They they walk. That's what makes us very unique amongst similar animals. Right. Right.
1: And the thing we did here, the 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 OMT, the osteopathic manipulation, it got me walking so much faster than I should have that everybody, myself included, were impressed. Like, I'll admit, this was an atypical result. But I also, dude, it was, I, I'm not kidding, it was an hour plus of treatment, self-directed most of the time, at myself, every day for three, four weeks. And then, dude, being able to walk again got my soul back. Like, we were talking during the break, the first mm-hmm. kettlebell swing I had was profound. The first time I walked down a stair, the first step I took on a stair without fear, I straight up, I looked at my wife like, "Did oh, you
0: see that?" Oh man
1: and she she knows how happy I am because she yeah. like she watched me break, crawl around the house on three legs because you're crawling, so it's two hands, my hands became legs my and the one leg I have because I can't walk. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go from that crawling to like shuffling like Ivar from Vikings to this weird propped up thing on a scooter to eventually I was standing on crutches, to eventually I was standing on my own two feet. She watches transformation, and the first time I walked down a step, I just straight up told her I loved her. <laughs>
2: like, I, I didn't know yeah, what else to say. Well, what else is We're there to say? at the mall, say? you know what I mean? And I'm just kind of like, kinda like I, this. I this did it. Great. Like,
1: the eyes welled up, and I looked at her like, I did it. I don't know what I did, but I did, I did it. And I got my soul back. This thing, um, the dollar value is probably like, dude, if somebody paid to get all this, it would, would have been strange in our current system. But... Dude, missing my soul for three months was painful. And getting that back was profound. And ankle, that's what this is. It's not just an ankle. It's your means of
0: communicating with the world. It's your means of traveling the world. Mm-hmm. And what do humans do? We travel. We travel, whether it be short or long distances. And yeah. you know, what's probably been most impressive to me for you in talking to you about this experience is the way that it's changed your perspective and patience. Yeah many of our patients have had pain for a long period of time right. and they feel disconnected from their body whether it be because of an ankle or other things so if we can go about and treat someone like this and reconnect them to their body reconnect them to their being right that is the most rewarding thing that we can we can do i think in many ways
1: right and it sounds like magic when we say it like that but there's something very real to it our our nervous system, our peripheral nerves, our brain, it needs data. If it doesn't process, it's a use-it-or-lose-it system. My leg was put away for so long because it had to be, like it needed to be in order to heal the tissue. But if I'm not firing that thing, if I can't see the part, the brain has to do other things. It's a busy brain. You seen we've been working together a while. There's a lot of stuff we do. Right. And it just decided to throw this thing in the wastebasket. Basically, it's kind of like my leg went to sleep. And how do you wake something up? You shake it, you feed, you give it some data. You give it so, input, right, stimulus, right. if you will. Right, right. So a lot of what the OMT does, a lot of what we do mechanically, there's this biomechanical model where, yeah, we can pop joints, we can stretch muscles, we can get a rib that's out of place back where it belongs. It's great stuff, but that doesn't make me excited. Like that's, that's fun, but that's, that doesn't justify a field. The thing that makes us powerful, I think, the thing that makes this field beautiful is the fact that we can feed data into a body to produce an outcome. We can feed energy
0: into a body to produce an outcome. And I love that we can feed it in, like you said, and then read the output. Right. And then adjust the message we're sending according to the output we're receiving. Right. And that connection that we get with our patients is a a wonderful thing. It's It's intimate. it's, It's a very intimate way of approaching patient care. One of the main reasons that we're doing this podcast is to also remind our osteopathic colleagues that they have this power to remember to to reconnect with their patients this way to remember that when you're dealing with an ankle it's not just an ankle it's a foot it's a knee it's a hip it's all of the structures in between to make sure you check those it's a person it's a person right it's a mother a father a son a daughter a friend any number of things that that this person, this the roles that they play, and that their injury influences. So, if we can bring them back to their sense of being, their sense of self, that is very rewarding.
1: Right. And the coolest thing about all that, just from a technical standpoint, let me—I have to switch from being the, the patient of my own self to the physician part of myself. I was being treated by myself, by my me, by Dr. Mason, by Dr. Survey, and so on and so forth. The maneuvers they used to bring me back was nothing special. It was stuff we learned in like the first three years of med school, basic things. Things that we need to know to even pass the exams to be doctors in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it was no fancier than that. The needle stuff, the acupuncture was kinda extra. That was kinda fun. But even then, the majority of the work was stuff that you walk away with by the time you
0: graduate as a DO. How cool is that? That. like That's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah. That uh, they were able to help you find it, the injury, fix it, and now you can leave it alone. And thank you for joining us on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Again, I'm your host, Dr. James, and joining us with uh, joining with Dr. Dante. And our next episode, follow us up in two weeks, and you're going to hear us talk more about the leg, but we're going to move up to the knee. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at RollinBonesPod, or shoot us an email at RollinBonesPod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Executive Producer Brenda Jaskulski, Producer Rob Upchurch, and Medical Advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast presents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited, to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances, shall James Aston, Dante Perez, Saj Survey podcast producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.